0: Hello and welcome to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulo, Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Tina Owens, Senior Fellow at Green America's Center for Sustainability Solutions, and she co leads the Nutrient Density Alliance for Regenerative Agriculture. She also has her own regenerative farm raising heritage pastured animals in Michigan and her own consulting business, Snowhaven Regeneration. Tina is a trailblazer in the realm of food systems with over 20 plus years of experience at the forefront of regenerative business, sustainable sourcing, supply chain management and financing. And she has a deep understanding of the linkages between soil and human health and the complexity of nutrient density in our food. Um, She has also been at the epicenter of the transformation of the food industry with her roles at both Kellogg's and and Denon. Um, Tina is also a board member at Regenerative Rising, which makes this a really exciting conversation. And uh, it's so wonderful to have you, Tina. And I've been in awe of you since we first met, and I'm so excited to um, talk about uh, what you're doing and there's so much to learn from you.
1: Oh, thank you, Nisha. And I'm so pr- uh, proud to have you have been joined as the new executive director of Regenerative Rising. So I have also been really looking forward to this conversation. Let's get started.
0: Yeah, awesome, yes. Um, so your f- work has been at the forefront of the regenerative transition, you know, you've seen the shift from various perspectives from from within the corporate structure and from outside from, and and from, uh, and now from a very uh, mission centric, uh, from the movement perspective as well. Um, so, how about we start at a point of, and I, I want to learn, what's, what are some of these key observations of along your journey that has brought you to this point um, in the context of regeneration?
1: Yeah, um, thanks for the question. I have a strong belief system in the regenerative ag movement as a somewhat interesting single solution to a lot of issues. Uh, And while it may not be perfect for everything, it certainly does check a lot of boxes as it relates to planetary health, soil health, human health, biodiversity above and below ground, um, and the potential for mitigating climate change. So uh, it's rare to have something that uh, checks so many boxes of need across the spectrum of human paradigms but I'm super excited about where the regenerative movement is at in this moment, uh, which we'll get into more, just how many people are at this table, how uh, many different paradigms are uh, being shifted into a regenerative perspective and look forward to sharing a little bit more specifics with you as we go into this conversation.
0: Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good, uh, good start point. And I'm curious about um, the linkages between nutrient density and climate change and um, uh, and how it's affect how the way we are producing food is really affecting nutrient density because then it comes down to um to the health of the self, um which which probably is a great way to get more people involved because there's this um, active connection that's affecting you. Uh, as an individual uh, your children um your family and it's no more a problem that is happening somewhere else to somebody so um how does nutrient density fit into all of this and and you um are an active part of the nutrient density alliance so um i'd love to learn some learn from what your experience is there have been like
1: Yeah, thanks, Nisha. So uh, I first learned about nutrient density tied to regenerative agriculture in 2016 from Tim LaSalle, who's a leading regenerative ag uh, and climate uh, scientist at uh, Chico State uh, Regenerative School. And uh, they actually coincidentally put out one of the most uh, original uh, regenerative definitions as we know it in the current regenerative spectrum. Um, leading to the core practices uh, that are at the base of most of the regenerative definitions that we have in the marketplace today. So um, I started pretzeling my life around this idea of nutrient density in 2016, and I'm happy to see a lot of movement uh, behind it in the recent, I would say, 12 months uh, as it relates to moving it to the center of the regenerative movement. So um, what is true is that we have degraded our soils and are the soil structures to the point where the plants are no longer able to take up the level of nutrients that they need and used to be able to take up in healthier soils uh, using the mycorrhizal fungal community as an interactive pathway with the plant in order to return nutrients to the, the plant that we then eat as food. What's interesting about nutrients is they're the taste creators within our food. So um, if you've ever had that strawberry that looks like it was going to taste perfectly and then you tasted it, and it tasted like cardboard, uh, that is a strawberry that was not taking up all of the nutrients that your body actually expected to get from that strawberry. And what's interesting is this has happened writ large across our food system. So um, a lot of our foods are um, missing the critical nutrients that we need for standard human nutrition. And there's a lot of research that you can find as it relates to nutrient gaps and um, childbearing age, um, health of maternity, uh, you know, um, segments of our life, and then also early, uh, early childhood and development uh, as it relates to nutritional gaps. So we know what the we know what the missing part looks like and what it means in society. What we're learning now is how to bring it back into. The existing agriculture systems, where soil health is put uh, central to the food system itself, and not just treated as a medium uh, by which we, you know, stick stuff in and spray at the right things, and it, it gives us something we call food at the end, but actually returning food back into a system where the natural cycles are working to create the outcomes that our bodies have developed and expect from our food. Um, and as you said, in the consumer mind. You know, Consumers are purchasing for health. There's a lot of data around this. There's a lot of data that they tie health, soil health with human health and better taste and um, better ecological outcomes. But we have yet to really solidify that in the broader consumer movement. Those are the first adopters, if you will. And so if I knew as a general shopper walking into the store that buying you know, product, re- regenerative product X versus standard product Y, meant something for my own fertility, my own longevity, or my kids' ADHD, or even, you know, satiety and how I actually manage my own hunger, Um, I might make different choices fundamentally than what I might be doing today. And there's a lot of consumer products uh, companies that say they're working in the regenerative space but have yet to actually turn this lens towards showing the consumer what the benefit is for regenerative agriculture to them. And so I think that's a critical component that we need to bring back to life in the food system is understanding the changing landscape of nutrition. Um, I'll add one thing that is very noteworthy that needs to be understood in this moment. Uh, Molecular mapping of food is going to matter a lot in the next decade for nutrient density. And so for those who have not heard of this before, I want you to go back and think of the Human Genome Project, where we first mapped the DNA of humans, which cost $3 billion and took 13 years. Uh, Then we had the Human Microbiome Project, in which we learned we are more microbes than humans, um, which cost considerably less and went much faster, to now you can actually do some of those same tissue samples for $100 in a a day. Uh, So now those tools are being turned on the world around us, including food. And there's a lot of notable efforts around food. And there are uh, new topics coming up, like a term called nutritional dark matter, which is the um, biochemicals in food that we've never been able to map before and that we're only learning what they mean for human health. And so there are a lot of researchers that are saying there are tens of thousands or even millions of biochemicals in food, uh, potentially as it relates to what we would call nutrition, and the USDA tracks 150 of them. Um, ergo, we know less than 1% of what's in our food from a nutritional perspective. So uh, we got to break what our faces and nutrition of last century's knowledge of nutrition and actually move into a new paradigm that's at a molecular level, mapped to what it means for our human health via AI. Uh, so mm-hmm. There's some exciting developments that'll come out between now and 2030 on that. But I just wanted to, you know, see that in there, that there's a lot of new, exciting work in nutrition to be brought to bear. Yeah, that is
0: exciting and very intriguing. So I'm wondering, because um, this is what occurred to me how does a consumer um really access and understand this information uh, when you start uh, mapping it at a molecular level um and how how do we um sort of deal with the information overload of it all uh because when there is a lot of information um and people are not able to understand it um Easily, there, there's also a chance of like things getting twisted and like yeah. uh, information being used in ways to promote some some specific agendas, right? So to um, to simplify it, what is also being done to uh, to or or how do we prepare ourselves to to this um, this incoming information? Like how do we prepare ourselves to understand it and use it yeah. to? benefit?
1: That's a great question. And you're right, for consumers having to understand what nutritional dark matter means, right? That's, um, maybe they might understand the high that term, um, you know, by some point later this decade, but really understanding what that means for human health is going to take some sort of translator. And fortunately, we're all carrying one around, right? So um, it's going to be about tying your food choices to things like your metabolic response through your wearables and having some level of red, yellow, green in your phone, helping you understand what it means for your human health. So imagine if your wearable is tracking your metabolic response and you ate a Snickers bar this morning, sorry, Snickers, and you're having some sort of response to it that's actually not good for you. And you're able to get a signal um, from your phone that's tracking your response and shares with you that, um, you know, maybe you should consider a different way of consuming that or smaller portions or something. Um, But if it's tracking everything that you're eating, and let's say you're not getting enough magnesium in your diet, um, maybe you're not sleeping well. And maybe it knows that because it's already tracking uh, the rate at which you're sleeping deeply. And... So it would tell you, hey, you've been eating this way for six weeks, maybe you should adjust your eating because you're um, you know, not getting enough magnesium that's leading to disruptive sleep. But if you eat this way for you know, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe it will end up leading to uh, a systemic disease or you know, neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's or um, dementia. Um, or diabetes, or, you know, the, uh, the the lifestyle diseases that our individual choices in food are already driving us towards. There's a lot of research showing that if you can address it back at metabolic syndrome, that you can actually help people curb that before they end up with those full-blown conditions. And so nutrient density is going to be key in that conversation. And we're not the only ones taking a look at this. There's actually a very famous study going on right now with the Rockefeller Foundation and the American Heart Association called the Periodic Table of Food Initiative. And they are mapping the top 1,000 foods on the planet at a molecular level, um, and then looking to understand what it means for human health. So if you go to their website, and you go to their impact tab, it will tell you that they are, um, they are uh, working to understand childhood nutrition. Uh, personalized nutrition, what soil health means for nutrition, et cetera. And again, this is American Heart Association, which means that they're teaching you, uh, you know, consumers what to think about this. They're teaching doctors what to think about this. They're teaching the healthcare industry at large what to think about this. And so we won't be the only ones talking about this. There's a lot of different tech that goes into this, including things like mass spectrometry and the ability to scan food and understand immediately what's in it and the nutritional levels. So our partner, the Bionutrient Foods Association, that's at the table for the Nutrient Density Alliance as a leader. Uh, They are working on nutrient variation, but they also have a biometer, a handheld uh, mass spectrometer that scans food, is calibrated for 10 or more crops, and it tells you that food's nutrient density instantaneously. So a lot of that tech will end up entering this space for you to be able to scan your food. And last thing I'll say on this, Samsung actually has a patent for an embedded mass spectrometer within cell phones. So at some point in the future, we should see this uh, be a part of how our tech is um, creating better outcomes in personal choice and in our daily lives. I'm conscious that my Zoom has fully disconnected because I have rural Internet. And so while you have me by sound, you don't have me um on the video at the moment or if you do it's a frozen version of me so I'm going to rejoin let's hope it doesn't disrupt anything um but let's keep the conversation going where do you want to go next
0: yeah absolutely actually your your uh, voice is really clear so um that's absolutely fine we can we can continue um yeah so I I think the beauty of this which really stands out to me is how how this really relates back to the individual and um, the distinct uniqueness of the individual, right? Like as a person who um, my reaction to say coconut oil versus olive oil would be different from somebody else's who probably grew up in the Mediterranean region. Um, so I think that's very interesting because we're looking at um very high-level mapping understanding of what each food contains and what is what can, what can generally be good for people and what is generally bad, which I think is a lot more important in today's conversation because there's literally a lot of poison in our food. But mapping it back to the individual is really powerful. And uh, because, you know, as we were speaking earlier, it really boils down to the consumer. Um, it really boils down... To empowering and enabling and facilitating a world, pretty much where every individual who is the consumer at the end of the day has the ability to um, ask for what they want and know what they want and are not just relying on what is trending or what is propaganda, but literally, if you're able to track your own health and able to see. And 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 you're absolutely right. Right, you can immediately feel the like you eat too much sugar, and 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 there's a big difference between eating processed sugar and eating like natural sugar. Like if you have a full watermelon, you're not going to have an energy crash. <laughs> but, right, so. That I find is really powerful, um, and and that's again um, some of your work, right, with uh, with Good Food Daily that uh, you are again trying to engage consumers at a more uh, powerful um, level and keep bringing this information out. So, um, I just want to ask you a bit more about that, like what what is what are some of those um, key messages or key information that somebody should really be looking out for in terms of being able to make choices for themselves.
1: Yeah, well, and thanks for bringing up Good Food Daily, which is an an initiative that I'm part of as head of product, which is looking to engage consumers through the media landscape and help influence them about regenerative agriculture in a positive way. So um, what's happening in the regenerative movement is you have a trillion dollars worth of companies. That's just the largest 100 food companies, 58 of them have said they're doing something around regenerative. And so if you add all of those up, just from a sales revenue perspective, you're already over a trillion dollars. So you're not a fringe movement at all. You are a regenerative as a fully mainstream movement. Um, and anyone who wants to see the data behind that is able to go to my website, Snowhaven Regeneration, and see that for themselves if they want to take a look. But what that means is you've got all these different voices entering the system um, of stating what regenerative means for them. And there are those four key practices, cover crop, crop rotation, no motel, and animal integration, animal or manure integration, that um, tend to be at the base of everybody's regenerative program. So people who feel like everybody's flying by night and all the definitions are different, there's a base structure there that you can pull out in every single one of them. So um, let's, let's feel a little less panicked about that part. Uh, this is how a movement gets started. Many, many voices come in the room and even have this, the organic industry before regulations. There were 20-plus you know, different states that had their own definition of organic and different percentages and different allowances, et cetera, before the 1990 Act to, um, to create the organic standard as we know it today, right? So um, let's remember that this is how a really meaningful movement comes to market. But what those trillion dollars worth of companies are doing is they're focused on their procurement strategy and their supply risk management and their greenhouse gas reporting and their pharma onboarding. Even though all of them are consumer facing brands, they are not engaging the eaters on the um, demands that they have for products like this in the marketplace, or they're only doing it uh, sporadically. So there's only a few products here and there in their portfolio that are talking directly to the consumer about what region ag means in their food system. And so Good Food Daily is an effort uh, with uh, the founder and my partner, um, Sandy Itkoff, who is uh, a leader in the documentary world, to help create some um, media solutions that help consumers move on the spectrum of understanding of the regenerative agriculture movement. So how do we make sure that the consumer demand comes in to not just lift up the um, regenerative movement from a, a purchase? and sales perspective, and then farmer demand, which is critically important, right, that we create a solid market and demand for farmers, uh, but that we make sure Regen Ag stays in the market for the long haul. So what I'm worried about is if we're only looking at this through the lens of supply web development or procurement risk, et cetera, and we don't actually embed it in the consumer mindset, that there may be some people who treat it more as corporate flavor of the month. When what we actually need is for regional agriculture to be as infiltrated into the grocery store as things like the non-GMO project certification are. So non-GMO project certification is the single largest on-pack certification in the U.S. outside of religious certifications like kosher and halal. And when you wind that back 15 years and realize they weren't there in the grocery store at all, and now they're in every single category, including health and beauty and personal care, Right. We need that level of staying power with the regenerative movement, that it's overtaking every category um, and that it's uh, got meaningful measurements behind it that consumers know that it's better for their health, that it's not just a, a corporate greenwashing where they're taking sustainability 2.0 and calling it regenerative. And so there's a couple different ways to create this level of accountability and demand. One would be in the Nutrient Density Alliance to see nutrient density as a central outcome of regenerative ag systems, because you tend to see positive lift on things like polyphenols, antioxidants, omega-3, 6 fatty acid ratios. The second would be to actually educate consumers on the movement writ large as it relates to their own personal health. So when you look at um, a lot of the consumer research around purchase behavior, especially as it relates to sustainability, you find that if you can focus it at people's core, where it's about what's within them rather than what you're pushing at them, that it's a whole different connotation, um, engagement, paradigm shift in their way of thinking. And regenerative, regenerative agriculture, regenerative systems has that potential for consumers, but they're not getting that information yet from the brands or from the industry, because, again, everybody's focused on supply and risk mitigation. And so we've got to start creating this umbrella effect, this a halo and umbrella of permission that these things are both real and that they matter for individual health and choice at the grocery store. Um, and so Good Food Daily is about ensuring that consumers are getting that information directly and that they understand that these products are both good for them and good for uh, the rest of the environment and movements that they would like to see as opposed to it only being about them helping something outside of themselves, right? It's always something somewhere else that they're paying for as opposed to, no, I'm, I'm paying for this for myself and I also get all of these other benefits with it. So it's critical that we bring that into the mix.
0: Yeah, wonderful, absolutely. I mean, um, it's really, at, at a big part of the conversation about regeneration is about sort of reconnecting with yourself and understanding yourself and really taking care of your own well-being because the environmental movement started in the uh, in in the early in, in its nascent years it was very much about Let's do this for the planet, which then a lot of people didn't relate to. But um right now we've come to a point where each individual is affected. Each family is affected, whether you realize it or not, regardless of where in the world you are. And um that's that can serve to really bring us all together in, in, in this way of understanding ourselves. And I, I really feel that that's a very important part of regeneration um, because that's a good start point because it also um, really relates to your sphere of influence now, which, which to me is like a great way to engage with really a mainstream audience who is busy with, other things and you know their survival, their own carriers, their own families, whatever those that that focus may be but everyone can still focus on the self and um, when this clarity between uh, what is good for this good for the human body, what is what is working for human health just directly and completely relates to what is health for the planet and what is the health of the soil. What is health of the air? Um, and air quality is something that um, that there's no more avoiding, right? Like, I mean, you step into bad air and you're immediately getting a a uh, respiratory response to it and um, we don't need to go to that point for food. So (laughs) hopefully we can start reversing and regenerating some of these things a little little beforehand. And I wanna um, continue one of those uh, things that you mentioned, which is again, a very interesting debate that I um, really see um, sort of uh, the the two conversations that is happening between like, do we need um, standards and, and frameworks? and uh, or is it just completely contextual but uh, whether we like it or not the world that we're in is really kind of standard dependent and we're really become a global um, global economy itself to, s- to speak right so um, how does but at the same time regeneration is extremely contextual and and um, how how does uh, how is that reconciled? Um, and, and I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not <laughs> asking for some final answer, but it's something that I always try to find the kind of, w- what is that intersection between these two things um, where you do need some standards, and but at the same time, it needs to be contextual. And especially when we're talking about global food supply webs and supply chains as it used to be but you know that is also a transformation but how does how how does one work with that?
1: Yeah well and you had mentioned uh, something you had mentioned right before the question was um, what I would call the hope and optimism of the regenerative ag movement so I just wanted to share that uh, before jumping into the standardization and and standardization can be part of this generating products that yes they're good for self, but they also bring the hope and optimism that you're doing the right thing all across the uh, you know, the value of what you're purchasing. Um, you know, standards, they are part of that simplification that we need as really busy consumers, especially, you know, if you're in early parenting years and you're getting maybe only a few hours of sleep at night and you want to know that you're feeding your children something that's really good. Right. I look at the um, the millennial movement here in the US. And when they became parents, they started over indexing on organic purchases because they were buying them for their children. And then after they were feeding them to their children, they w- were realizing, well, why am I not eating this way, but I'm feeding my child that way because I know they need it. And then they switched themselves into that paradigm of you know, purchasing something that's more in the natural and organic spectrum. Um, that paradigm shift you have to have something to latch onto to research, right? No one has time to go out and research every single brand that's in the regenerative movement. Well, except maybe me because I'm considering it my job. Um, But to be able to have that shorthand in the grocery stores, you're trying to make a decision about which barbecue sauce is best for your family, right? You're standing in the, in the U S you're standing in front of a category that has 50 or more offerings that are of all different shades and stripes, right? And so looking for that shorthand on the side of a product or in an app that's telling you which of these things is matching the values that you want, I think is critically important. And you've seen some retailers that have started weaving their offerings around this. The Thrive Market is a membership-related um, delivery service that allows you to sort on things like Fair trade Certified or gluten-free or organic or regenerative. And so, you know, it's important for consumers that want to uh, be able to access the movement to know what the movement means. And now that said, there's a whole spectrum of folks across the regenerative movement that we need to build on. You have the Regenerative Organic Alliance, which was one of the first certifications to enter this space, uh, along with the Savory Institute and the Land to Market Certification, both of which are critically important. They've helped pave the way on what certification means in the regenerative movement. Um, But for example, in the US, less than 1% of land is organic. And so if organic is the entry point for that regenerative certification here in the US, that leaves the mainstream market needing a different solution. And where we need the most shift is in the mainstream market writ large. Now we also need our gold standards and our North Stars uh, to be able to, to look at and that help pull the whole system forward, right? So Uh, The certifications I've mentioned definitely play a leadership, a thought leadership role that is absolutely critical and needed because they show us what the best outcomes could be in the system. And they also take into consideration the social elements like fair wages, animal welfare, um, in addition to soil health and regenerative practices. And we need people to have that full spectrum, that full paradigm view of where a food system could the operating, as opposed to, I would say, the opposite of that, a heavily commoditized, decentralized black box that's going into a central location and coming out as a processed food system, um, which is, you know, not inherently bad, but has unfortunately created some really bad side effects, like going for quantity, as opposed to quality, which has landed us where we are currently in the gaps in nutrient density and a degenerative farming system where some of the science that we needed to help explain some of the things that we've been watching for the last few decades has really caught up and has started showing overwhelmingly um, that we need to bring life back into the soil biodiversity above and below ground right all of these things Um, but i view the lens of certification as being critical necessary concretely must have this. Um, And, you know, for those who aren't sure which certifications to choose, it depends on where you're headed in the system. So if you're going to Whole Foods, they have a list of which certifications they'll accept for you to use the word regenerative on PAC. That's pretty clear if you want to do business there. Um, If you want to do business in the mainstream, it may be enough to have um, you know, some uh, technical assistance in soil sampling and adhering to those four principles that I mentioned earlier uh, and to be meeting the, what we would call the, the basics of regenerative agriculture. We need people operating in the basics to move along the paradigm because what ends up happening is they get, re, they get introduced to the natural systems, again, of soil and agriculture in a way that changes their thinking on an ongoing basis. So for example, there's a farmer that is part of the Green America Network who has spoken at the network meeting several times, who is saving a significant amount of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars per year on inputs that he no longer has to put on his fields. Well, after a decade or so of doing this, he, he realized, I'm basically farming organically, but I'm not taking the... Um, the credit for it. I'm not going for certification in organic. Maybe I should. So he did because then he's getting the premium from the system. But his thought process was so focused on repairing the natural systems and cycles on his land that it was the outcome you should see in the system as opposed to the certification and the premium An Oh my goodness! what I love for all of the farmers that I um, am that I live around. Uh, my family. I'm from a multi generational conventional farming and dairy family. The um, chop down every tree and uh, plow every field variety. Unfortunately, I'm the black sheep. But to have you know, to see a spectrum change from just standard corn soy wheat rotation in the U S. to actually thinking of their land in a regenerative way, where the mind has been regenerated. That's the part that we really have to undertake is that thought process. And so if it takes those first four practices to get people on that spectrum, and then we start moving them forward by showing them what's possible, that's where I get very hopeful. Certification helps. But if you're going to sell into a system, you really should have somebody looking over your shoulder, shoulder to validate the claims that you're making so that we all can have faith in the regenerative system. That's where I'm at.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I I couldn't I, I agree more. Actually, the the importance of uh, of really causing creating this 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 systemic shift, um, and in 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 a system that has like it's it's so pervasive right now this this degenerative system and um, and it's like it's so confusing. And the the interesting thing about the paradigm shift as you were speaking. What I was thinking of was I think the the paradigm shift, the wonderful part is that um the certification is now for the consumers um uh I don't know what happened to the life um is for the consumers benefit um is for to simplify life for the consumer and um as opposed to working with uh, giving over a lot of certification and a lot of limitations to um the farmer. so this this paradigm shift makes allows for regeneration to be um contextual and and to be really rooted to the land as far as production goes. But then for the consumer, you're not. Um, you're not flooding uh, the person with information um, that is, right. serves to confuse, but rather simplify and say, "Okay, on this spectrum of this health, which gives uh, speaking of well-being and health, this is where you're at." If you buy this product and you and you are able to understand it in um, in 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 a minute or a second, and and it also enables you to make smarter choices.
1: Yeah, and even though we have a farm here and we sell directly to, um, you know, former colleagues of mine, to family members, to neighbors, you know, they know our, they know the farmer, they know it's us. Um, it's not always possible to buy from a farmer that you know, and you know, we live rurally, um, where it's not always possible for me to make it to the local farmer's market. And then my local farmer's market happens to contain more arts and crafts or maybe bottled honey than actual. Crops that are grown, and you know, so it doesn't really hold a lot of um, pull for me to to make it over there. And yet, I would purchase that way if I had the chance. Instead, I'm shopping in the largest organic retailer, you know, Costco, um, and at some of the other regional uh, grocers that I have around me, especially the the health food stores, to try and create the demand there for the products that I'd like to see in the system. But the certification is how I came to my own understanding of the food system and the values uh, that are um, within the organic movement, within the non-GMO movement, and then eventually in the regenerative movement once they started really diving into it in 2016. So, yeah, I, I think the while we would like to see a regional regenerative food system, the centralization of how those things actually get delivered to us in the U.S. at least is probably here to stay. And so that shorthand for consumers is is a critical, important way of communicating uh, what's happening.
0: Yeah. Um, So I just want to take a minute and say that uh, you are tuned in to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, and with me today is Tina Owens, senior fellow at Green America's Center for Sustainability Solutions, and she co-leads the Nutrient Density Alliance for Regenerative Agriculture. She also has her own regenerative farm, raising heritage pastured animals in Michigan, and her own consulting business, Snowhaven Regeneration. I want to speak a little bit about... The, the the complexity of the supply web in this same context of regeneration. And as you were saying, um the central sort of controlled supply is is here to stay. And but then there is the grower and then there's ingredients are coming from across the world and you have uh, worked with sourcing and supplying and, and making this transition into sustainability and regeneration for organizations that are in within the um the food uh, industry to so to speak so i was wondering where are we at today uh in terms of um the challenges of sourcing regeneratively um and especially considering that that ingredients are coming from across the world, from some really remote parts of the world. In fact,
1: yeah. Um, so I'm going to take an approach on this that may be different from where most people would respond. I have built supply webs uh, for it is my main role at Kellogg's and Kashi. Um, so I did that for the better part of two decades. And then at Danone, I built regenerative finance um, for one of the first programs within um, Big CPG as it relates to regenerative agriculture and the, the financing of on farm transition. But what I've recently discovered, because I spent 2022 working with a climate scientist trying to reintroduce a native perennial grain back into the food system, is um, you know that even some of the processing capabilities that exist aren't are so centralized that it's really difficult to even bring unique um, products back into the marketplace that are grown regeneratively. And so there are two different gaps in the system currently. One is the conversion of farms and helping them pay for any upfront costs they might occur, incur in converting their operation to regenerative. And I don't want to um, uh, you know, make that seem like it's a small issue or anything. It's actually one of the critically important functions Within farmer uh, conversion, is having that assistance to be able to convert because technical assistance and other things are needed up front to help them understand. But beyond that, on ingredients that may not have a robust supply chain that's developed or that um, maybe don't have the ability to segregate the regenerative product that they're making uh, because you can't get the efficiencies of scale in the rest of processing, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. So. When I was working on this native perennial grain last year, you know, we found it quite difficult to find um, uh, cleaners and millers that were willing to deal with a grain of that size. Uh, which means that all the other perennial grains, grasses or the games that we were working and bringing into the system, you know, they have a different profile than what's currently being run in the system. Uh, even though they could be technically planted and used as food and generate ecosystem services credits, and maybe take some products that are currently annuals today and move them into a perennial system. So, for example, the perennial rye was planted once every seven to 12 years, um, as opposed to you know replanting rye every year. Um, and so, you know, there's a manufacturing side of this. If you are doing the manufacturing side, like for example, there's a large meat company. Um, that has products in market that are regenerative, but it's not using the whole animal. And so those other cuts of the animal then end up going into conventional systems or even into pet food. And those are higher quality products in some cases than even what's going into hospital meal service or what we call meals on wheels here in the US where you're feeding meals to people that are in need. Um, and so we've got such an efficient system at a massive commoditized scale that some of these operations that are coming in, even with some, you know, good volume behind them, still have challenges in getting to the same level of efficiency as the existing system. And so then it ends up feeling elitist because then you have the people who can pay the premium that covers the rest of the animal or the rest of that supply web, um, cost because you weren't able to maximize efficiency for land utilization, or sorry, for line utilization, fixed assets, overhead, all everything that comes with owning a production facility. Um, so it's important that um, we understand that even in the start of a movement, if it comes with a premium and it feels elitist and only people with certain funds are able to pay for it, it's those folks that are helping it get to the point where the cost can come down. So, you know, at one point in the organic movement, I remember paying $7 for one head of cauliflower because it was certified organic. And I felt slightly ill at the time, but I was like, I'm gonna do it anyway because I could afford to pay the $7 for the head of cauliflower. And then the more I thought about it, it's been years now and I still remember this purchase clearly, but I've been chewing on it ever since. And I'm like, those of us who can afford to help the system get started, even if we're just doing our consumer part to pay that premium, should be doing that so that it can get to a point of efficiency. So for example, in the organic movement, a lot of the original extra costs for organic were in the fact that you had to carve out time on an existing conventional production line. You had to do an organic clean. You had to let the line rest. And then you had to you, you know, put through your, your product in you know, a day or two and then have the line go back to being conventional. Well, all of those fixed uh, overheads that are associated with that production line weren't able to be used as efficiently. And so it passed on a premium to the consumer. And many times what's happened with organic getting lower costs is that the volume got to the point where it was efficient enough for it to have its own allocated production lines or resources, which then takes out those extra costs that really nobody's getting except um, you know, in the production system, and it's going to a cost that go out uh, of, the, of the cost of doing the product as opposed to somebody getting it as a profit, right? It, it doesn't add to a margin. It's, it's a pass through. Um, so being able to actually put that on a production line that's running solely organic, or solely non-GMO, or solely regenerative, is a massive leap forward, but you've got to have the volume to be able to do that. And only when you do that, will you see the efficiencies that we're used to experiencing in the rest of our ultra cheap uh, food system, you know, in relation to the percentage of wage that it takes here in the US. So, sorry, that was kind of a long and trailing way of backing into the answer for your question, but uh, does that make sense
0: in the scope of what you were asking? Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, so at the end of, I mean, it's, I agree that there's, there is, a lot of uh, value in um, in embracing the fact that this is a process that uh, we can't just overnight become regenerative how much ever we you know you can't snap your fingers and just like change the system and while we're changing the system we need to be patient and forgiving and um, and and accept the things that um that are possibly limitations and and then understand that it's part of the larger process so yeah absolutely it un- answers the the question of like um where is it all coming from which is um really a big part of the movement as well and i think just the fact that that question can be dealt with is important that um that we're thinking about it uh, at at every level that where where is it coming from and uh um and then this is a pro- I mean, even and regeneration itself is a process, right? It 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 is part of it. There's no, I I I can't imagine this. Oh, okay, this point where like, okay, we're regenerative, we can stop now. There's there's there is never going to be that point. The point of regeneration is that it's it's a process and it's not an end goal. Um, so that's um, that's really valuable. Um, and. To speak a little bit more about the cost component, um, and, 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 you know, I mean, I know I'm like, we're, we're going through a lot of topics and that's really because you've done so much. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit as well. How 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 uh, interdisciplinary your career is and how it has all come together into uh, Snow and regeneration. But before that, I just want to ask... Um, what there's so many new different alternative funding mechanisms available. How is that influencing um, the ability to manage costs and and sort of enable a more um, more affordable regenerative kind of pricing for uh, food products that are available?
1: Yeah. Well, and it's worth saying that in many cases. Um, once a farm is on the regenerative spectrum, that they're actually ro- removing costs of inputs and other, um, uh, you know, systems that they've been taught to use as uh, part of propping up their, their dirt. Um, as they move back to soil and it actually having the life that's meant to be within the soil, a lot of them are seeing cost reductions. And I've actually spent a lot of time or have made sure to track every single time I've ever come across a um, validated resource on pharma cost reduction uh, to show that the profitability is there. And it's also something I've got um, on my consulting website for anybody to access. So there's the funding aspect. There's a lot of uh, capital investment that's going into regenerative conversion. In many cases, it might be because you're part of a corporate Uh, supply web, and you're being asked to do this, uh, hopefully with some of the Climate Smart Commodities uh, grants that just went out from the USDA to some of the larger players that are operating in the regenerative space and have very big commitments around acres. Um, What we still need to fix, though, from a policy perspective is things like farmers planting cover crops, not negating something like crop insurance, um, or using no-till and not negating crop insurance. Uh, so, you know, there's some state by state policy uh, aspects that still need to be dealt with. Um, hopefully those could be dealt with, in, you know, the Farm Bill of 2023 or beyond, but very close in to not penalize farmers for moving into those systems that actually lower the, the risks for their operations and that help restart the life within their soil. Um, There's been a couple different ways that I've helped cover costs in the past for farmers, so um, let's start at Kashi. This one's actually an organic example, but it works really well on how that consumer component can come in. So in 2015, 2014 and 2015, uh, Kashi undertook a program called Certified Transitional, which was about paying farmers that were in that three-year process of converting from conventional to organic agriculture. And we did that with QAI as a third party certifier. So we've got the certification aspect in there with third party validation. And we made consumer facing products, uh, like a cereal, a shredded wheat, that was specifically from farmers that were in the process of transitioning. And this product was so successful that it created a halo effect for the rest of the portfolio. And we saw significant high single digit growth in the natural and organic channel the year after we launched this because of the values reset. And because we were moving the needle on organic agriculture and conversion in the U.S., which, again, is less than 1% of farmland in the U.S. And so I was creating supply webs out of thin air in conjunction with the food scientists. So having to meet their margins, having to meet their nutrition needs and ended up building um, regenerative or sorry, uh, transitional um, supply web programs around six different farms. Well, under my watch, we returned two and a half million dollars in profitability to those farms that otherwise they would not have gotten. And it was because the consumer responded to the program itself and were activists in purchasing the product. And then I was making sure that that premium was going all the way back to the farmer through a series of audits. And we converted under my watch almost 10,000 acres from conventional to organic practices. And so, you know, once an acre is organic, it's highly likely to remain organic because of the premium that comes in and the fact that the farmers could choose what they wanted to grow on that organic acre after that. If they wanted to get away from growing organic uh, organic wheat or sorghum or, you know, whatever we had helped them convert to, they could take the, that and plant anything they wanted to for the best organic premium for their farm in order to help with overall farm profitability. Uh, so that created a... An awareness for me of where the consumer can be the activist and the catalyst in this to create that demand for farmers to feel supported and help convert. Um, You know, that rising tide lifts all boats. Then at Denone North America, I got asked to create a regenerative finance program and ended up uh, with about $4 million in USDA grants, a couple million dollars in philanthropic grants, and the impact investing capital of tens of millions of dollars in access for farmers to get loans that were at or below market rate um, to help them convert. And so my hope was 60 to 80% of anything that a farm would have to spend we actually had covered in the grants and then they would if they had to get a loan they didn't have to walk into their local peer agent or local lender and convince them what regenerative agriculture was or why they needed to buy a roller crimper or why they needed cash flow for cover crops, right? All of these things that at the time were very cutting edge this back in 2018. And so, um, you know, there was the right rising tide there of capital that met our need and it's continued to grow since then. You have organizations like Mad Capital that's doing a lot of work in this space, Replant Capital, um, Providence Capital, uh, you know, there's, there's just a whole mission-driven finance. There's just a lot of different places that you could go. And David Lizax has written very well about all the different components of capital that can be found now in the regenerative movement and where their focus is. Uh, So funding is a great enabler, right? Um, But also there's, you know, scientists out there that insist that there's farmers that don't really need to pay that much to convert. It's more about being able to know which cover crops to grow on your land to start that uh, process of transition. But if you want to measurably prove that you've done something, you should probably do soil sampling and, and measure the conversion over the course of a couple of seasons and beyond to show that meaningful change has been made, again, to buffer against, you know, kind of a corporate greenwashing approach where they might be using sustainability practice, not not regenerative practices, just sustainability 2.0 and calling it regenerative, which we definitely want to buffer against in the system so that it doesn't get undercut from a transparency, truthfulness and trust perspective um, as we look to really embed it within the full food system. Uh, yeah, so I've been fortunate to see some systems that really worked in helping move the needle for farmers and creating that base. Uh, I'm really hoping that in the Farm Bill for 2023 that there's a lot more support for individual farmers to undertake this on their own, especially for young farmers who want to come back to the farm. In the 2017 census in the U.S., I think it was 30 uh, over 50% of farmers the age of like 6, And it's going to be worse this time around because it was 8%, I think, of farmers that were 35 or less that had joined the food system. And so we have farmers that are literally going till they can't go anymore in the system, you know, aging out, Mm -hmm. if you will, um, and not enough farmers backfilling them. And those farmers that want to backfill are the young ones who want to do things like organic or regenerative and use these different systems. They really need the funding. They don't have all of that. Um, equity that's been built up over generations, over decades, like uh, their grandfathers had. And so we really need to see a lot more support in the system focused right specifically in that area and undoing some of the previous wrongs that were done in funding in the U.S., uh, including, um, you know, access to capital for uh, Black farmers, for the Indigenous communities, uh, for people of color writ large, uh, for urban farming, some of these alternative systems that are really about centralizing food within the community again, uh, which leads to better uh, regional and regenerative systems. So I'm hopeful to see a whole lot more of that in the rest of this decade.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's that's exciting um, to see that that. Other other supporting and enabling mechanisms, including funding, are also transitioning. Um, and, and what we're really, really sort of hoping for and working towards is a very supportive regenerative movement that is um, very collaborative and, and uh, very unified in terms of the goal, in terms of where we want to be and how we can enable each other. Um, and that that's really just well, it gives a lot of hope to start with, but it's also really to see the system in action in and, and and it's it's really inspiring. And um, speaking of inspiring, I'm just really um, the interdisciplinarity with which I mean your expertise in so many different um, sort of topics related to to the the realm of regeneration and field systems um is really fascinating and um if we relate it back to the idea of complexity the idea of having to de- that it's not one thing and one solution and like putting blinders on and solving problems and creating more problems in the process, right? And that's essentially a big part of the shift, the paradigm shift, that to understand that every action has a ripple effect and it could be a very positive ripple effect or a very negative ripple effect. And the idea is to create that nexus of um, solutions solving other problems uh, rather than creating more problems. And um so in how do you uh, how do you keep this this messaging really uh, integrated into uh, into your own process of consulting and and that you know and that i i i see that that's really what snowhaven regeneration really comes to because it's it's all of this expertise um that you have built over the last twenty and more years, and how does that, um, how does that really f- uh, help with the the current scenario? Like, how do you how do you put that out into the world?
1: Yeah, well, I would say I've learned a lot from all the expertise around me, um, and so in many cases, it's me sharing information that I've learned uh, over the last few years with a lot of others. Uh, you know, going back to 2016 and when I did the first soil health program for Bolivian quinoa growers in Kashi. Uh, and so I've been learning since that time. Um, you know, uh, when I joined, so you mentioned earlier on the board of Regenerative Rising, um, Isalane Diaris, who founded Regenerative Rising and was the previous executive director, has done a whole lot to engage the spectrum of voices across the regenerative community in a way that it became a cohesive constellation of, uh, of experts to listen to. And so I've been very fortunate to be guided by her. Um, and I know you're, you're taking that role on this year and bringing us all back together uh, post-COVID to have those wonderful, deep, connecting conversations that really matter and are not at a capitalist level, but actually are at the humanistic and social and spiritual level uh, that need to be engaged for this work to be truly sustaining. Um, You know, I've had wonderful mentors uh, throughout my work career that have helped engage me in the scientific studies that they've been involved in and helped me understand what it means for the work that I had at hand. And I think I was very fortunate to start off at Kellogg working in research and development with food scientists for the first five years of my career. Um, in the food system. And, you know, they were from all continents except Antarctica, right? So I was working with people from all over the world with very global views about food and helping them manage their innovation projects for um, from a global sourcing perspective. And so I think that open innovation, that open mindset, that collaborative spirit, knowing that each one holds a certain piece and that holding that piece up high and calling yourself an expert and leaving everybody else out is not the right approach to take. It's all a family, a unit, a community of voices brought together and inviting people to bring their expertise to the table, recognizing other people for their expertise, not just taking it and running with it and trying to do something on my own, right. But actually trying to be part of a bigger collaborative communal collective (laughs) Um, is, the most important thing we can do as experts in this field. So um, if I was only working in corporate sustainability reporting, I would have a very limited view of what I needed to do each day. If I was only working in um, procurement sourcing or if I was only working as a food scientist on creating the next product, I might have a very limited view of what I needed to do. But when I reach beyond what my role requires to understand that the way I source those ingredients really matters for things like nutrient density or human health, the way that I um, uh, create a recipe and put all those ingredients together can have a meaningful impact on the land, on the farmer, on the child that eats it. If I really understand that that sustainability reporting can come with a regenerative mindset that means that I'm pulling the company culture forward in understanding more about this new food system paradigm and not just yesterday's metrics on what it means to be uh, a good light bulb changer. Um, Instead, moving to true dynamically, uh, fully integrated regenerative systems within food companies. You know, that requires a different mindset. And so having that modeled um, being around people like yourself and Selene, our broader board, um, you know, Mad Agriculture, um, uh, you know, we've got a Clarenda Stanley on our board who's living this as well as a farmer with a brand, um, Green Heffa Farms, right? And bringing this to life, showing people the whole spectrum of what needs to be solved. We need a lot more folks who are looking up from their own part of the system and not just checking the three or so boxes they have to check to get their raise and bonus for the year, but actually looking at what their own part is. Um, You know, I happen to believe coming from the CPG world, that folks in those positions are in some of the most privileged positions you could be in to have decision making in this moment, given that agriculture has such a massive footprint in the health of our human populace and in addressing climate change. And so for me, it's always been How many different puzzle pieces can I put together? How many different people can I help connect to one another in order to lift the whole system, not just my tiny little piece that I'm going to get paid better for at the end of the year, right? Because at the end of the day, I might get a really good paycheck up until, you know, 10 or 15 years from now when the whole system starts collapsing because of unmitigated climate change and then suddenly... I won't know what to do with myself or I could work backward from that point and start creating really deeply meaningful change in all parts of the system wherever I can um, today. Uh, so we haven't gotten to it as a topic, but you know, one of the areas where I'm doing that is the life cycle assessment process, which I uh, went through a uh, process this last year with the perennial brain that I was working on and discovered that not only are perennials not taken into account uh for soil carbon sequestration without paying extra and doing a a whole outside process but organics themselves are not set up for success within the existing life cycle assessment framework there is no central cache of organic lcas they remove a couple of data points from the conventional system and call it good well that means that if you were to take all of the existing data on life cycle assessments and greenhouse gas emissions and feed it into something like ai and ask it to make a decision you would be leaving out regenerative, perennials, organics, and indigenous managed lands, which, by the way, when you add all four of those categories up, you're talking more than 50% of the food system. And, oh, by the way, it's the 50% of the food system we actually need for human health, longevity, um, you know, generational health in the future, um, climate change mitigation, soil carbon building, uh, you know, uh, all of it, uh, water, water cycles, everything. And once I learned this, I couldn't unlearn it. It There was something I had to do about it. And so um, fortunately, I had all of the right uh, peers, friends, connections in the food system to have this conversation when we created a roundtable to talk about this issue, going beyond that organic, conventional, you know, those old tensions and saying, well, within the conventional food system, you're talking things like viticulture, wine, you're talking almonds, you're talking ocean spray cranberries, you're talking Driscoll's blueberries and raspberries. Mm -hmm. Those things are not being given the credit that they deserve in the existing LCA structure and greenhouse gas reporting because the methodologies have not been refined to the level that chemical agriculture has refined them. And by the way, that means we're leaving out a whole viewpoint in what we would currently call empirical data. That has to be fixed. With the greenhouse gas mandatory reporting structures that are coming in place between now and 2030, it puts those systems at a disadvantage that is utterly Um, unacceptable in this moment because we need these systems so badly. So, you know, it was finding out that type of problem and not being like, Oh, well, shoot, nobody's going to pay me to do this, or it's not part of my job. So I guess I won't do anything when in fact I was sitting here with all the connections, all of the people to talk to, all the people to bring together in order to ask this question and start elevating it on the global sphere so that life cycle assessment methodology, writ large, could be looked at to include things like the regenerative movement. I mean, imagine Carville and their 10 million acres, or Nestle and their 14 million tons, or Pepsi and their 7 million acres, or you know General Mills and their 1 million acres. It's all these commitments they have around regenerative agriculture, and at the end of the day, the life cycle assessment methodology doesn't take into account the positive outcomes of the systems change that they just did without having to have some sort of extra design outside of it, the standard everyday process does not understand that a GMO beet sugar and high annual tillage should not have the same starting point as a date palm that's planted once every two to three decades requires almost no inputs and also gives you sugar. These two things are not the same, but they're treated as though they're the same. There's um, chemicals on the field, there's the harvesting process, and then there's all the manufacturing and storage and, you know, the consumer uh, stream of you know where it goes and ends in the life cycle, but there's no acknowledgement of everything that comes before that for biodiversity above and below ground, um, for the carbon accrual, for the water cycle, for downstream effects, for nutrient density, and what we would probably consider true cost accounting outcomes and the benefits associated with those. Right, none of that is taken into account, and so we're going to have to change that framework at a global level if we really want to do the right things as humans. Um, But in your question about, you know, paradigm shifts and bringing all these different viewpoints together, sometimes it takes 20 years of building all of those connections and relationships just so you can have that moment where you're like, oh, I see a problem. Do you also see this? What does it mean? How do we fix it together? And then have the courage to step into that space and try to make it right. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm working on over here. Wish me luck.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, I think what really I'm sitting with listening to you is just how incredibly um, interconnected even knowledge systems can be within the self. Right. And I think um, that's the 20 years and more than that, the mindset to want to do it is um, something that really gives hope that as, um, as, People like you are able to step out of predefined boxes and comfort zones to explore more, learn more, and try making these connections for the self first, and then within um, within the work uh, paradigm as well is really very powerful and very inspiring. And I would also, I, I'm really, I'm really gathering a lot of hope out of this conversation because if. There's this great work going on at this level, which is often what people are sitting with and saying, "Oh, this is not in our control, but it could be." Um, and this is the system change that they're working towards. And we're not we're not just sitting back and saying, "Fine, we can't we can't change anything." Um, so that's really, really inspiring and powerful. Um, we're almost at time. Uh, but I just want to ask you, um, what's next? Um, is there anything exciting for yourself or for the world um, from Snowhaven or any other part of your uh, of the work that you're doing that you'd like to share?
1: Oh, so much exciting stuff. I think that uh, you and I being at Expo this year. And I'm on a panel about nutrient density. It's the first panel on nutrient density tied to regenerative agriculture uh, that's been had by New Hope at Expo West. Um, So I'm really looking forward to integrating this further into the natural and organic community mindset. And there's a lot of regenerative brands there. I know you are also leading a panel at Expo West and I'm very excited for your introduction to the natural and organic community um, because regenerative rising has been such a, a beacon of hope of community, of change, of supportive networks, of strategy, of, um, you know, what leadership looks like in this space. And we just have so much work to do. And I know it's going to be incredibly impactful with everybody back from uh, COVID and really ready to dig into true meaningful change. And I know you and I are just going to have a great time um, working with our community there. So I'm really looking forward to that next, which is in about a month
0: yeah absolutely me too i mean i can't wait to have these these conversations uh in real life in real time um at uh, expo west and um with and also engage with a lot of our audience which who is actually part of this community of natural products and regeneration and uh, looking forward to to really meeting a lot of people in person and um yeah i just want to add that uh, for regenerative rising Um, the board and it's for me was really a a very powerful experience to be in a meeting with so many incredible um, grounded women who have really spread their wings who really um, expanded um, beyond limitations and to be in that meeting is is just um, a very uh very powerful experience and um so uhlain you and um every other uh, member of our women's board is is a big part of uh what regenerative Rising stands for and uh, what we hope to achieve in the in the coming years um so yeah, um, and before we close, I just wanna—the last thing—do you wanna? Is there a way that people can read more about you, or is—is um, is there a website? Is there—is there a way yeah. that they can reach out to you?
1: Yeah. So there's SnowhavenRegeneration.com. Um, Snowhaven is S N O W E because it's an anagram of my last name O W E N S. Um, it's similar to the name of our farm in Michigan. Um, I would also mention that we also have our big Regenerative Rising uh, kickoff coming up with uh, Awakening Audacity in April. So we'll have a lot of moments to be able to engage with the community and put the leadership to work of those of us around the table um, with you directing us. And so uh, it's going to be a, a really critical year, 2023. I can't wait to see what happens next. And I think it's yeah. time today Maybe yeah. to talk with you about these things.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, me too. It's really exciting um, for all that's coming up and um, all that we're building towards uh, with Expo West, with Awakening Audacity and and the other things that we're yet to announce and uh, are working on. Um, so I thank you. Thank you so much, Tina. Thank you for your time. It's been uh, an incredible conversation about so many things. I've learned so much. Um, I have like things to look up and like more things to uh, also expand my own knowledge um, into. And it's just really, um, it's, it's really just incredible to know that there's there's this much work going on out there. And it's all interrelated and it starts with the self, but it really is. There is a lot that we can do as individual individuals, whether it's picking choices as a consumer or whether it's stepping out of our um, limitations to, to really work towards changing the system um, by even doing simple things like learning more about the system and um, finding our true genius and working with that as a tool. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on this podcast.
1: Yes, I can't say thank you enough. Good to see you again.
0: Yeah. So with that, um, this is Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Tina Owens senior fellow at Green America's Center for Sustainability Solutions, and she co-leads the Nutrient Density Alliance for Regenerative Agriculture. She also has her own regenerative farm, raising heritage pastured animals in Michigan, and her own consulting business, Snowhaven Regeneration.